can't begin the radio show on time. Hey, this is Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio. 88.7, WP 88.7. I always get thrown, Dr. Stephen Marconi, yes, on how we're on supposed to Central say Pacific this. Time. That's right. This is uh, in Hawaii. We still have six hours before the show begins. Right. But uh, we started a little late. We had a little technical difficulties. We're going to run a little over so that way we can uh, still give you your full 60 minutes of music business love. Right. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp, along with your professor, Dr. Esteban. That is I. Yes, Dr. Esteban Marconi. We are here with... We are here with, well, our producer, our producer du jour, Nathaniel Hawkins, but we call him Nate the Hawk. Nate the Hawk! Nate yes. the Hawk is in the house! Good to have you, Nathan. Nathaniel. I called you Nathan. I almost did that earlier today. I almost called you Nathan. Like you're a hot dog and you're not. You're a very cool cat. And then we also have somebody else with us in the yes, room. Yes, an MBA candidate. Yes, he's a candidate for a president and a candidate for MBA. <laughs> And his name yeah. is Charles. I'm running for president now also. <laughs> yes, you, oh, we didn't tell you yeah, that you're you running. Right yeah, right. <laughs> I think you'll probably get a few votes. Yeah, Charles Potenza, everybody. Yeah. Charles Potenza, getting that M, trying to get that MBA in music business, yep. music management. And uh, we want to thank you for listening. We want to thank for all the uh, thank you for all the tweets. We have a great guest who will be on with us shortly. Okay, so John can hear. So John Butler from Curb Records. We're going to uh, talk to him shortly. Good to have you, John. John Butler from Curb Records. There we go. Uh, John Butler's here. So that's Rob Fusari's "Don't Let Love Down" in the background that you have been hearing. And <clears throat> let's see. We have everything. So, okay, sign up for the newsletter, musicbiz101wp.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at musicbiz101wp. And you can listen to this podcast in the future on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, and it's under musicbiz101 and more. Stitcher I stopped well. talking about Stitcher because I don't like their uh, format very much. Uh -huh. I, up I upload the podcast to our website, and automatically they should go to Stitcher, and then I don't see them up on Stitcher, and I get frustrated yeah. with their yeah, right. poor technology. And you know, So I won't bash them. But uh, a few things that we should bring up real quick before we go to our good friend John Butler. Is that all right, Dr. Stapon Marconi? Sure, unless you want to skip them tonight because we're running so late. This top one is top's importance. Oh. Then we can skip the others. Okay. Because we want people, because speaking of Music Biz 101 and more, which is what we are, we want everybody to come to Music Biz 101 and more live. And that uh -huh. is going to happen on Monday, November 7th, right around 7.15 in the p.m. time. This is produced by our music and entertainment organization. Student club. Student club here on campus. They do a great job. They won a big award for this La last year last year correct and we did it last year uh nate the hawk our guy right here behind the board he's going to be running the board there just like last year we're going to record the show and you'll get to hear it as a podcast later in the year mm -hmm. and then this is going to be a live show with a panel of guests including and we hopefully will air it yes on uh the night the, before uh, thanksgiving that's right uh november 23rd right there we go that's your date yes and our guests will include Rosie Lopez, who's the president of Tommy Boy Entertainment. Mm -hmm. Tom Hefter, who is a director of stuff. Spe special. Special services. Something like and, that. And uh, VIP packages and things. A Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster. Um, Matt Young, who is a big senior vice president mm -hmm. at Warner Music Artist Services. Caitlin Drozd, who's the director of human resources at the Warner Music Group. Actually, technically, it's director of talent. That's what they call human resources people. Wow. Yes, they call them talent. And uh, Lou Maselli, 
who is in the band Palisades. Yes. Who's an up-and-coming Jersey band who's going to have actually some really cool stuff to add. Mm-hmm. And we're going to begin around 7.15. Then there's going to be networking with the panelists, including some other folks who we're bringing aboard uh, at 8.30. And if you want to come to William Patterson that night, November 7th, that's a Monday. Come on by. It's at the ballrooms. It's free. And if you want to register, tweet us and we will send a link to you. So that way we'll know you're coming. So you have to register for it? I have to. I don't have to register, but you, Charles, would have to register. I don't think I have yet. I I will. And that is okay because it's still a couple weeks away, but um, we can get the link to you. I'll be there. All right, Charles Patente. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, thanks to Van Dyne Bruno. Thanks to Christine Vey. Thanks to the Music Biz Association. And why don't we give thanks right now to John Butler on the line VP. He's still there. Promotion at Curb Records. Johnny. I, I am still here. Good evening. Good. Uh, Professor Esteban. Professor yes. Dave. <laughs> Great to uh, hear Nick your voice. Is it Nick behind the board? Yeah, Nick. Yeah. Uh, Nick. Nick. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Nate. And President Chuck. Yeah, yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Nate. Nate, Nate, the, Nate the, the hawk. Oh, Nate. Yeah. All right, Nate. Right. Yeah, that's a guy. Does this a little nostalgic for you to bring back any memories of the uh, the time you spend here at WPSC and all the stumbling that's going on, <laughs> or the unprofessionalism that's going on here? Oh, uh, God. <laughs> It happens in all levels of radio. Um, yeah, I, I spent uh, about two years on the air there and a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, right at the beginning of the sign-on of the radio station all the way until I graduated in 90. In, uh, so I did yeah. mornings there, um, got up at the crack, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> was at that studio about 5.30 in the morning, three days a week um, for two semesters, and it was a lot of fun. Great. Uh, really pivotal for me so yeah. yeah it's nice to be back i love the radio station i've supported it all the way through and and it's uh brings back fond memories sir yeah i was talking in class this week about um well we were talking about who was the guest tonight and uh, of course when i was talking about you i said he was one of the few students that actually was a full-fledged bachelor of music music major in jazz and decided to flip that because you was got so involved with radio, you knew that was your future. Come yeah, on. I mean, uh, <laughs> like a lot of students, I imagine that they feel like there's this moment where they get through a first couple of years or a year or even a semester or less than a semester, and they start to kind of uh, figure out what's the right path or what might be the right path. And I just kind of stumbled into it, and Dave did too, because Dave... Um, early on was uh, uh, a DJ uh, as well as WCRN, which was the cable carrier current right, station that right. existed before PSC there, and I, I guess it's still there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so there was a number of us that uh, came over and started getting some radio shows and kind of figuring it out. And, and from yeah. there on, it was it was sort of like where I wanted to kind of focus. Yeah. It didn't work out for Dave, but that's a, that's a whole other show. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so why don't you tell us, uh, since we're on it right now, that path to where you are today? Well, I, I mean, I wanted to be, you know, a musician and straight on and wanted to play jazz and wanted to play rock. It was a great time for guitarists. It was the 80s and, you know, everything was... Mm-hmm. Post Eddie Eddie Van Halen and Ingve Malmsteen days, so everybody was shredding left and right, and 
and uh, William Patterson was close enough to where I grew up in, in Wharton, New Jersey, and uh, it was uh, a, a great opportunity, a great school, and it was a straight-ahead jazz school. Uh, I knew I was going to get a great education. I could have gone to Berkeley School of Music, decided not to, came to William Patterson, and then uh, you guys had a program for uh, music business, which sort of I, I always hedged on this idea that I just wasn't going to be a a strong enough player to play uh, consistently. And the idea early on was that, while I wanted to learn as much about the industry itself, um, and the program kind of gave a real opportunity to be able to do that early on, at least uh, uh, being able to run into a lot of the uh, seminars that you guys had early on and, and um, met Steve Leeds, who is still kind of involved in with you guys, and uh, mm-hmm. he was sort of... Uh, really encouraging, and a, a number of other folks like Jim Caparo, who I know is a mentor to Dave as well, mm-hmm. um, were sort of sort of early influences, and I got to Wayne Patterson, um, shredded it out for a while, and then kind of switched in the middle of uh, junior year, kind of focused a little bit more on radio and communications, but I wound up um, graduating there. Uh, but because of being involved in PSC, um, I wound up being co-music directors with another guy named Steve there and uh, got to take a number of calls from promotion people uh, who were working college radio on on releases that were coming out. So because of that, because of my involvement with stations, I got real-world sort of experience of what it was like on the other side of being spoken to or worked with from, from a promotion standpoint so that was really invaluable and that kind of set me into the next uh, realm which was finding a job after after college which I managed to do that while I was still in school um, PSC was uh, able to uh, help me get out to Los Angeles for uh, a um, industry convention and, and from there while I was out there I, I met uh, Steve Gottlieb, who was running uh, TVT Records, and they had just gone out to um, market with the first Nine Inch Nails album. So um, I got an internship there and started calling college radio, what I was uh, doing already, but on the other side. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, it just kind of um, tumbled into, you know, last 25 years. Mm-hmm. So how did you get to Nashville? I got to Nashville because uh, when I was uh, after TVT and a number of other labels in New York, um, I got hired at, at Jive Records, and at that point, they really were focused on hip-hop and, and rhythmic music and started expanding to pop and rock, and, and because of my background, I, 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 got, I fell into a job there and, and worked in sort of developing a lot of younger artists on the blues side and the rock side. And um, Zamba, who owned them at the time, was owned by a guy named Clive Calder, and he uh, was in the process of buying a couple of Nashville-based labels that were in Christian contemporary music. And we, in the process of that, uh, they discovered that they had like a really cool little band um, called Jars of Clay, who I got to work over on the mainstream side of things and I helped them break uh, through with a single called Flood that they had in, in the late 90s. 
And uh, through sort of the success of that, I started to get more involved in uh, the Zomba um, purchases that were based in Nashville. And I, um, it just seemed like uh, it was there seemed to be a lot of really cool developing artists that were in the system. And uh, because of that, I got familiar with Nashville. I came down a lot for a couple of years and then got used to it, really enjoyed being here and uh, had an opportunity to come and do pop music based in Nashville and led to a job at Arista, who was uh, sort of expanding in that same area that, uh, that Zamba had. So that's kind of what got me to Nashville. And that was, uh, I thought it was going to be about three years and then I would go to Los Angeles and mm-hmm. kind of do all three coasts. And, you know, so, so 98 and now, so we're, we're talking 18 years I've been here. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's a that, long time. That kind of works out. So you, uh, how did you then get to curb? Well, Arista, um, got bought and merged into this, huge sort of transition mode with uh, uh, BMG and Sony um, and at that time uh, there was a, it was just was a, it was an interesting time in the industry because there were, everybody was having monster hits and it was still pre-Napster it was right on the edge of that so there, there was a good amount of uh, new labels and new cash being invested into you know, guys coming out of label situations and setting up their own shop and I got involved in a, in a small band at the time called Sixpence None the Richer, who were helping start a small label called Squint. And uh, the guy who was running that is a guy named Steve Taylor, who was uh, a significant figure in Christian contemporary music, but he was a, much more of an alternative sort of, um, you know, not mainstream music in that sense. He was kind of an eclectic guy and and I really had great taste and uh, was finding all this great talent. They had signed Chevelle. I had uh, Six Pets mm-hmm. and the Richer again. We had this uh, band called uh, L.A. Symphony, uh, who was a collection of hip-hop artists out of Los Angeles. And it was a really eclectic label. So I was there for about three years. And then uh, through a number of unfortunate purchases and deals that were happening at the time in the industry post Napster, it was really kind of eventually got to Nashville and ended that. And uh, Mike Curb was looking to purchase the label that owned Squint. And that was Word Entertainment. And it didn't quite work out, but um, he got me instead. So <laughs> um, when Squint imploded, um, I, I, uh, was brought aboard and and mike said what do you want to do and i said well i mean i i don't know but i i do like where you're where you're going from a vision standpoint and mike has always been a very eclectic uh guy in terms of the types of music he's been involved with from you know starting in the 60s with you know biker uh, movie soundtracks Mm -hmm. to the osmonds to Davis Jr. to um, uh, wow, you know, you name it, and then mm-hmm. like a uh, a lot of uh, country music over the years. I mean, he just has he has a real pop sensibility about him through a number of years that he has um, given me an opportunity to kind of find my niche within the company, and and I've been there for it'll be 15 years okay. in a couple of weeks. Great. So. 
So we've had uh, several themes with different guests this year, uh, but one of the themes that we've uh, repeatedly talked about was that um, you would have to put your job on the line for something, whether it was an act that you wanted to sign or it was a, a record that you wanted to be the first single or so on. Do you have any moment that you can think back in your history that was maybe the first time that you really went all out on something and luckily it, it panned out? Yeah, I would say anything that has actually been successful in my career has been sort of like that situation. And it's interesting you bring that up because I've, I've spoken a lot about that with other people that have been in the business and are still working in the business. And they've had sort of these situations where they kind of had to, I don't know, uh, go beyond maybe where where things were sort of limit self-limiting or if it's self-limiting or or just the, the situation was limiting. And, you know, certainly Nine Inch Nails was not something that was mainstream at mm -hmm. the time. And that was definitely um, a whole, it took the whole team there of a really small label. And there might have been 12 people that worked at TVT at the time mm -hmm. to kind of rally around that. The music is fantastic, there's no doubt. And music sometimes really isn't enough. I mean, you really... At that time, you, you you had to knock on every door, and we heard every no possible. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, uh, Jars of Clay, you know, crossing a Christian artist over into mainstream yeah. pop is, was not necessarily the easiest thing. Um, but there had been instances of that in the past, and again, it was great music, but it's kind of when you know you have something, you have to kind of lay it all out. Sixpence None the Richer, Kiss Me, was a monster Mm -hmm. The number one record of Billboard, and and um, but we had worked that record for nearly eighteen months, twenty months before it got there, um, and it took a ton of people to do that and a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, so, and you had to try, um, you know, throughout my career at Curb. There's also been examples of that. Um, even, you know, folks like uh, Tim McGraw wasn't always Tim McGraw, as mm -hmm. you know. Um, he had a massive hit with Live Like You Were Dying, not only in country, but also in pop radio formats as well. And that was a lot of effort. Again, um, country is not something that you necessarily hear on mainstream pop radio stations. So um, that's a whole other argument why as to why that is. But, yeah, you have to, one thing, I don't know if it's like, a survival tool, but I think the people that have been in the industry for a while that you work for or around, I think you have to get your stripes and you have to make your bones. I know it's like mm -hmm. an old phrase, and I'm not really sure if there's a new one for it, but you, you kind of, I always tell folks that, that have been in for a while and, and they're kind of pushing around a little bit and trying to figure out where they're, where they're at you really do have to kind of go into the negative a little bit, into the red mm -hmm. uh, sometimes. If you believe hard in something and really know it's there, I mean, you can't take no for an answer. You you really have to, um, you have to be smart, of course, and you have to know when your right shots are. But I think the people that have been in the business for a long time are only really remembered by the successes that they've had. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there's, 
for every one thing that comes through, there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of disasters that no one remembers, you know, mm-hmm. because the one hit was usually big enough to cover a multitude of sins. But it's not really sins, but it's just kind of like you got to pick your shots. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get a little bit into um, the history of radio. Uh, in the 90s, the laws changed and Clear Channel became huge. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about that and how has, has, has that changed radio promotion at all when uh, that's, that happened in the early 90s and so on? Yeah, I, I think uh, it might have been 96 or 97 with the Deregulation Act uh, that um, Clinton put in. Yeah. Um, Telecommunications you know, I don't know, Act of I don't know if anybody could have predicted it, but it did change the mom-and-pop sort of mentality in markets around the country where you could maybe take a song that was regional, um, say it was an artist or or a a rock band or any artist that can break them in Florida, and you would go from Florida up the East Coast and you could develop it over through a series of smaller radio stations that were all independent from one another and... Mm -hmm you could see and, and track sales on how that was happening, and you could really have regional hits that eventually could or could not become, you know, uh, big national hits. And I don't, I don't think it was right in 96 or 97 when you had anybody felt the, um, the effects of deregulation, but as soon as the gloves were off and, you know, corporations can come in and, and um, really tie up a number of uh, stations. Yeah. Um, and say- that's when, you know, you had um, sort of a, uh, you know, sort of a, a grouping of, of stations all under one programming philosophy as opposed to, you know, lots of individual markets with individual owners. And, you know, I, I can't say for, you know, individual station owners at the time that, you know, they might have seen this and said, listen, somebody's going to offer me tons of money. I'm going to cash out. Mm-hmm. They probably held on to that radio station for years and years and years, and it was a tough haul. You know, radio is always mm-hmm. a tough haul um, in many markets. And they probably cashed out, and, you know, it was uh, a big reset button for the way that the public hears music. Um, and But promotion and the, folk, and, and the process of breaking an artist really hasn't changed uh, other than just the, you know, the tools that we have to work with and, and the grouping of stations. You know, you're, mm-hmm. you're down to, just like you are with the amount of record labels that are owned um, by just a handful, um, radio is pretty much controlled by just a small helping of, 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 uh, of stations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what happened, we should uh, just review, is that telecommunication communication act said that um, there wasn't a limit on the number of stations in one particular market that a company could own they could own as many as they wanted and uh i guess for radio promotion then you were sort of then pitching the consultant for x amount of stations instead of going door to door yeah and then those and those stations uh could it's kind of a double-edged sword because it that also opened up how um, genre formats were able to kind of become uh, their own 
powerful blocks. Uh, you know, alternative radio mm-hmm. kind of grew up and really exploded in the early 90s and really got corporate by the time this happened. And, and then, But they became, it became a format that you could go to and, and develop artists at before you went to Top 40 mm-hmm. or before you went to, you know, before you went to other formats. And right. likewise with AC and Adult Contemporary, Hot AC. Um, but, you know, you had uh, the growth of multiple genre formats was uh, also a... Um, sort of a, a side product of uh, deregulation as well. But yeah, all pretty much under one OM, you know, handling a cluster of stations. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the time they were individual program directors for each genre station. Um, right. Now that's really not the case anymore. I mean, you know, you got, you'll have uh, um, uh, one or two, if that, in, in mar- markets that will oversee uh, a cluster of multiple formats just because of the of the consolidation of radio. Yeah, that was my my next question and then I know we want to get to some tweets, but has the micro formatting changed the business uh and when you get a new record and to try to figure out what slot or what micro format is this might get legs enough to become a pop hit or whatever. Yeah, it's kind of an either. It's kind of like a feast or famine thing. Um, you know, you're you're either everywhere or you're nowhere um, mm. for a lot of music. Um, but um, alternatives waned a lot. Um, it's still there. It's still uh, a functioning, you know, format genre. Um, there's adult alternative radio, uh, which still exists and. You know, they're, they were all there before deregulation, and a lot of them are still there now. And they kind of, you know, are tastemakers, and they can help develop some music that's a little ahead of where Top 40 is. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, I think um, what's kind of happened along with it, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, is just the, um, ex- the uh, explosion of streaming services and how... Um, you know, there's a lot of options now for content owners to develop artists and what role radio kind of plays in all of that when, you know, um, when there may be not necessarily the first place that people will hear new music. There's There's been a study that, and I, I, I mean, it's been around so long that it's thrown at me constantly, you know, that um, it talks about it where... You know, there's still a significant portion of Americans still discover new music through radio. Mm-hmm, sure. And I, I can't refute that, but there's also a significant millions and percentage of people that don't listen to the radio that discover through YouTube, which is the new radio or, mm-hmm. or streaming services. There's just a, when you talk about available radio listeners, there's a lot more people in the United States than just available radio listeners. Not everybody listens to the radio, but it's a uh, it's really interesting um, situation with that. And what radio is trying to figure out right now, if they're not necessarily first for new music, they actually may be first for new music for their listeners. Mm. And that's, you know, I know mm. that's semantics, but... It's true. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not necessarily 
if you're a passive listener and you love your radio station, well, it's pretty much the first place that you're going to hear the newest of whatever the new music that you hear. Um, if you have a voracious appetite of looking for music and discovering music, and you're, um, you're, you're into it, you're not necessarily going to listen to, listen to radio to um, help you discover whatever you might be thinking about next. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Uh, um, the other thing was that, you know, I grew up in an era, with, and a lot of my peers did, with the idea that radio doesn't make hits, they play the hits. And that is definitely like a, a outgrowth of, of consolidation um, where the market is going to dictate what a hit is. But if radio doesn't play it, I don't know how it becomes a hit. So it's, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg thing. And now mm-hmm. with streaming services, it, it, it's, and, and just the way that listeners go about finding and discovering and consuming music it's that that kind of throws that whole thing out of whack a little bit um that was a great tool for radio to be able to hold a lot of records off the air until they were proven by them mm-hmm. that their audience uh loves them and uh, through testing and you know research um now um you know one of the great things about uh, the environment now is that we can find out a lot about music before we ever take it to radio and have our own research. It's not necessarily driven by radio's audience, but you can make assumptions that we're talking to the same people. Mm-hmm. It's almost like radio is a reflection even more so than ever of the culture now, because like you just said, people can go to Shazam People can go to Spotify, see how many streams. They can go to, obviously, YouTube and see how many views a video has had of the same, you know, all across the same song. And radio is reflecting that lifestyle that other people in other platforms have uh, discovered or decided to use that that song. So it, it's interesting kind of that you say that. It's interesting because radio can make, and radio is like, I don't care who's going to ever tell me that, oh, it's the end of radio in terms of artist development or breaking artists. Absolutely. Actually, radio is even more important than it ever has been. Mm-hmm. I just don't know where in the process of that discovery or that development process where radio is going to put themselves in. Are well, they going to be at the front end and decide what's going to be a hit? Because they have that much power and that much reach to really force-feed an audience you know, music. Or are they going to be reflective of what's happening in the market take that data and kind of you know not let the audience program it but it essentially that's exactly what we're kind of coming to is um you know there's a battle versus curated for you or you're curating it and that's kind of where we exist you know as an industry and it affects what i do from a promotion standpoint i can't even call it radio promotion anymore. There's so many different factors and so many different places where um, we go to develop artists. It's really media promotion in a sense. Mm. Uh, sort of going along the lines of what we've been talking about, Charles is going to we- read a yeah. tweet to you right now. Okay, sure. Um, this question is from Jeanette E. Music. Jeanette Elizabeth is her name. Um, she asked, have, 
Have the benefits of being played on the radio changed over the years? Is radio still very important, very important for artists today? Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, kind of what I was saying. Yeah. I don't. I'm. I'm still. And I'm still working it out. And the great thing about doing what I do and and, and is that I'm still learning every day. And that's one of the things that I. If I left you with anything, is that if you have a hunger to learn something new every day, the music business is perfect. Mm. Um, because what you think you might know one day is going to turn over on its head the next day. And just because it's a reflective of how our culture consumes art, you know, and mm. that changes drastically depending on who is driving it, the technology available, and who's serving into it. Um, to answer that question, it's more about taking your your Maserati from 50 to 150. It's mm. from zero to 50, where I'm not sure radio's future really lies. Mm. Um, it really is up to radio at this point in time. And one one of the things I spent a lot of time talking with my with my partners because they are um, they they can help take an artist from B level or C level and make them superstars overnight just very quickly with the amount of uh, rotation or the amount of times the impressions you'll hear on a particular song or an artist. And they can cycle through stuff and find out whether or not stuff, stuff is working for their audience very quickly. But when it does, everybody hears it. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, that can really, you know, markedly change an artist's life very quickly. So. I think it's a wait, 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 boom. And, you know, it's, it, you, you hope you're on the boom end of it because it just changes everything very quickly um, in a way that I don't think, uh, certainly streaming can get to everybody, um, but there's different types of streaming, passive, you know, uh, or active, you know, in terms of, you know, you're searching it out, it's on demand. Um, it, it hasn't matured yet. It's quite, it's white, it's right there. Uh, it'll just be very interesting to see whether or not there are going to be even more, more, more uh, Spotify or home, homegrown uh, streaming artists that become household names without the benefit of terrestrial radio. And I, I'm just not completely convinced of that yet. John, it, at what point could happen? But. Mm -hmm. At what point does an artist get beyond the one-hit wonder? I mean, in, in our lifetimes, we've had one-hit wonders, everybody from the Archies to Dead or Alive to Psy. And radio plays a part in that, in that they decide to make one, or, you know, play one song, and that's a huge hit. And then you never hear another song from that artist again. Is that a mix of things? Is that because maybe the artist manager is a jerk or they're freezing at the label or because just the artist only had one good song and we nev never ever came up with anything as good. Is there any sort of like general answer to that and does my question make sense? If I really had the answer to this, I might not be talking to you and I'd be yeah, on the beach right? somewhere. Just <laughs> you know. But I think the, gen I think the general answer is that we are more song by song driven than we ever have been. Um, maybe since the 50s and I think you'd have to ask somebody who was really in the business in the 50s because I always hear about it. Oh, it's back to the 50s. And like, well, I didn't grow up in that, but I understand that it was song by song by song, and you had lots of one-hit uh, one wonders, but not necessarily long 
established careers and I don't really know the answer to that but people like songs and uh, are and we are certainly driven in the streaming world by songs and less compilations of of one artist's grouping of songs I mean I think it's going to take to change that in other words like the one hit only thing one hit wonder thing I think is just I don't know if we'll even be saying that anymore. I think it'll just be so common that one hit will create a career, and then we'll see whoever can follow up with hit after hit after hit. Um, And maybe streaming is going to tell us a lot about who has the best songs at any given point in time. Uh, The artists that kind of stick around and continually bring great songs and you know, get out of them when they don't work and are able to come to market with another one that's just as fantastic as the other one and can string a number of them together, they're going to have the longest careers. Or maybe there's going to be a career for somebody that has the one hit, they back out of that drive of that, because that's one lane. And they go out and tour, and they tour and tour, and they have a career after all of the nonsense of, you know, one hit at a time sort of thing happens and shakes itself out. There will be some sort of shakeout. There's going to be so many, you know, for-pay streaming options out there that you can plunk down, you know, five bucks to ten bucks. Not everybody is going to have every single one of them. So the streaming end of things, it'll shake out eventually where there's sort of like radio, where there's going to just be a few standing that sort of own all the air, air share of, of time, just like terrestrial radio does. It's just, it's the function of how things uh, eventually evolve. Has uh, exclusives done anything to the promotion business? It's been a, um, I think a lot of people would say that it's uh, it's been a headache. I know a lot of, uh, certainly, we have not gotten involved in that, primarily because we don't necessarily have huge, you know, general mainstream superstars mm-hmm. like that where we can, you know, leverage that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not even sure if that, that's a very short-term thing. Um, I wanted to kind of address one thing that kind of came up as part of that tweet question um, about radio. So records, my job is to get records played on the radio, and my report card is the charts every week. Um, that really hasn't changed. I mean, that, that's been a function of promotion for as long as I've been doing it and, and way before then. Radio is also measured by a set of parameters that show them whether or not they're successful. And that's, you know, ratings and mm-hmm. how well they bill from an advertising standpoint. Mm-hmm. So each of us have sort of ways to measure whether or not we're successful or not um, in our endeavors. What's really interesting about that is that um, I can have a chart hit and not sell anything. Um, A radio station can play stiffs and still be the number one radio station. Um, And or because they bill, because for what, like lots of different reasons other than the things that are measurement tools that decide whether or not we're successful or not. And we are right now, from a promotion 
standpoint on the label side and a radio standpoint on the label side. Dealing with what could be thought of as antiquated measurement tools to, to measure whether or not we're being successful or not at what we're doing. Um, I think somebody moved the cheese mm-hmm. and we're constantly dealing with the things that keep us employed. Um, and they are charts, and for radio, it's ratings. But mm-hmm. you know, the uh, companies in radio that have figured out that they're media companies and less radio companies are going to be the ones that survive and thrive, and they're going to be the ones that content owners like us and other labels will be working with and will be partners for in the future because it really will be about branding and reach. And I sense that we're really there's always been sort of a weird sort of uneasy relationship between radio and records. And I, I, I think that we're right at the beginning of making that, um, sort of really, um, formally working together in a way that, that benefits both of us because mm-hmm. they are not responsible for making hits, but they are responsible for making hits. If they yeah. want to, reach people they're going to have to play things that people want to hear mm-hmm. so i don't i don't know if they can you know they can abdicate a responsibility to be a part of the artist development process just as much as we can't say oh radio doesn't matter until you know we're 300 million spins at, at spotify or like you know 300,000 or 300 million you know video uh views at vivo it's that it can't be the measurement tool that decides that oh that's when we're going to start working together. Mm-hmm. It just it can't work like that in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you see uh, in the future? Do you see a Pandora or a serious breaking an artist? Well, that's the thing. I mean, YouTube certainly has. Well, yeah, YouTube um, with the video and, and so on. But I mean, you yeah, know, the, the real radio Pandora serious audio only. Yeah, not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe. I mean, there might be interested in it. There might be... I may not know of them. Um, Certainly, it depends on what your level of success is. If you're talking about superstardom through the label system, well, that's one kind of success. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of that. Um, And then there are other artists that have been able to work directly with those services who uh, can have a career um, outside of the label system. Yeah, outside and, of terrestrial um, but, radio. But there's, but, I don't know, like, for, I still think that as as much as it's easy to say that that system is over, it's really not, and it's really essential to the next step, and it really depends on what you, what you value from a level of success, success is for, for you or an artist or a manager when you're looking at your career, you know? Yeah, wouldn't say all roads lead to Rome, but it certainly does feel like that. Really, at the end of the day, you know, and eventually, if something gets big enough, there's going to be a label there that can get involved and service through to traditional media and terrestrial radio, and effectively go from you know 50 miles an hour to 150 miles. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You've been speaking about the uh, future, and you just mentioned 50 to 100 miles an hour, 150. Uh, Charles has a perfect tweet. This segues very good into this next question. Um, This is from at Bobby Mahoney, uh, named Bobby Mahoney, same name. (laughs) Um, 
question is, how does Curb plan to deal with the shift in radio when self-driving cars are more popular? Mm -hmm. Well, that will give a lot of people the ability to go into their phones and pull up the Shazam app and hold it in front of their radios. <laughs> I guess that might be her. It's a great question, though. Have you put any thought? Have you even? I saw one headline about that on Hypebot or something today or yesterday, but I hadn't even occurred. That hadn't even occurred to me. I don't know if you've thought about that. Struggle with the idea that you know, like my job, like my title is vice president of promotion, and it's radio promotion, right? So, but we've been spending the time that we've been spending talking about pretty much radio and then almost everything else as a function of getting our music and artists played. And that that's what I mean about the technology changing, where I'm not just sitting there dialing and calling radio stations to get my record played. Um, it's really way beyond that. It's There are so many different places that we have opportunities to get our content heard so in the context of the question um, we can't be super reliant on radio terrestrial radio or the brands there to be in that situation uh, to rely on them to put us on their brand which will then go in you know to self-driving cars or or whatever technology exists where people can consume um, I'm sure that other labels are in the process of figuring out, you know, where they can put their content directly to consumers. And, but like with any programming, you still need a, a lane. Like Netflix has somebody that they are green lighting tons of great content mm -hmm. because they have a, they have a lane. They're a cable, you know, mm -hmm. they, they, they are, they're, not only do they have the distribution system, but they're also putting their own content into that, into it. So, but they still have to exist on some other technology for some people to access it. So we're in the same situation in the sense where we're thinking about what we can, what we can utilize and leverage to brand our content or work with our brand partners who have, uh, who are on the platform in order to be able to get further along. I don't know if I answered that question, but that's. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not an easy question to answer. I know, but I think, but, you know, like I'm, where I'm thinking about radio stations or radio groups, Cumulus and CBS and, you know, and iHeart in particular, all of them are thinking about how their individual brands will exist on other technology. Mm -hmm. And iHeart's been a great example of, I think, of the foresight that, that they really had to kind of get in there, SiriusXM as well. I mean, SiriusXM is far and beyond, like, just cannot believe how many listeners, you know, they have now, paid subscribers, that want really well-curated experiences. Mm -hmm. um, they're really the, you know, forefathers of this, in a sense. iHeart, definitely, you know, they, they don't call themselves iHeartRadio any longer. They're iHeartMedia. Oh, yeah. You know, they really understand that it's their individual brands, whether or not it's Kiss in L.A. or Z100 in New York. Those are not just national. I mean, they're national brands now. Mm -hmm. 
they they are they're actually even international brands at this point and that's really the future about what makes those brands stand out that everybody wants to you know access their media or their content through that's why our our relationships with terrestrial radio and our our partners are really important and they will always be important because they have had the foresight to put themselves in a situation where they can carry our content to consumers. Do you pitch SiriusXM, your content? Yeah, SiriusXM is a very interesting situation because um, they um, they uh, pay um, not only for the airplay, but they also pay you know uh, on the mechanical mm-hmm. on the yep. on the um, where we would get money from Sound Exchange from airplay that we get from. From Sirius XM, so it's a fundamental part of our artist development process because there's so many channels and so many places mm-hmm. that are. Um, I mean, if you want to talk about genres, that you know, Sirius XM broadens like you know, gets even more intense with the um, level of genre-specific areas that you can go to with music. They just provide a great experience to develop, you know, tribes of people that are into your particular artist. And I, I think it's a, um, I mean, it's essential. I think certainly Spotify is, is doing that as well because of their not only curated playlists, but, you know, if you get a really good playlist together and, and you're able to kind of get people to follow that playlist, you can you can really influence a lot of people at the early nascent part of the development of an artist. And it's it's really essential. Mm-hmm. One, one, one more question, because we just talked about Sirius, we've talked about hit radio, but what about NPR, National Public Radio? Because there are stations nationally that they aren't playing Z100 type hits, but they're still helping to break artists. And we had a manager, Alex Cadvin, on uh, about six or eight months ago, who is the manager of St. Vincent, an artist of that ilk. And he was talking about how important... NPR was to an artist like that because they're sort of that that uh, adult alternative that you were talking about. Maybe they can be edgier or something. Edgier, not necessarily harder, but just uh, maybe slightly more eclectic. Uh, do you find that you're reaching out to NPR? And, and if so, how do you pitch NPR? Is that an individual station or is that uh, in Washington, D.C. at their headquarters? How do you do that? Well, it, the cool thing about Curb, or at least where I have, is that we have content that covers all styles of music. So, you know, we have things that could work that are of that ilk, as well as mainstream country or mainstream pop and more of that in the future from us. But, uh, yeah, there's individual curators of those particular shows. Um, um, KCRW in Los Angeles, uh, Morning Becomes Eclectic is significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cal State Northridge, uh, KCSN is a significant radio station in terms of artist development of, of those type of artists, and, and that's a terrestrial broadcast. NPR nationally is huge. Um, there's um, Bob Bolian, who uh, does uh, Tiny Desktop Concerts, as well as WXPN and World Cafe. These are all tastemakers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're terrestrial based, but you know, not everybody is driving. Not everybody who consumes music is driving the Z100. You know, they they 
and this is the best time for anybody that loves whatever sort of thing that they want because everybody's so hyper-focused on serving whatever it is that you like to you over and over and over again. So if you're into uh, those type of bands, you're, you're going to have a field day when you go online as well as, you know, the choices that you can find on terrestrial radio to super serve you uh, with that. And that's a whole hit, you know, I mean, you can't say it's hit music radio in a sense, but it is hits. I mean, those are hits. You know, um, great songs, form, great yeah. artists that are finding a a fan base, and that's what I mean about measurement of success. There's only a few. There's only just a few superstar, superstar, superstar artists that are so widespread that they get covered everywhere. Um, but artists right now have they have to kind of define what it is and where their niche is ahead of time and they have no excuse with which to do that because there are so many opportunities and places to go to get music exposed on all levels of what anybody would consider radio um, and to reach a consumer that advertisers and as well as content creators want to reach so we're in a very unique time um, where it can be that specific. And NPR does a great job of driving home uh, a, you know, some would say sophisticated taste. Uh, I would say that. World Cafe is a fantastic show in terms of developing and giving a national platform to artists that may not necessarily get played by uh, contemporary hit radio. So how do you, how or do you nor would them? the audience that listens to that radio station really maybe necessarily are looking to consume that particular music. So how do you pitch these uh, tastemakers, whether it's KCRW or Bob Boylan? How, what do you do? You know, either directly to them um, or using a number of, you know, different data uh, uh, points. Um, you know, <laughs> an article in the New York Times about your artist is actually still really golden, especially in that genre uh, touring will still uh, impact what a radio station does in terms of getting into a market and developing a fan base all the things that were essential at the outset of my career in 1990 are still really essential in developing artists uh, and those folks that go out and check out artists and Bob does a good job of that Bruce Warren at, at World Cafe to, I don't mean name drop, but I know there, there are particular music people that are really hungry to hear the next thing, and they always have been. And now they have a platform which is influential nationally to kind of help develop artists really from scratch. So I think it's a really cool time. I'm not, I, I, for, for an artist, I never really get discouraged. There's always a place to figure out where to go with an artist. It doesn't have to go one lane and good luck. Mm. Um, the uh, the excellence of particular music and singles will be found um, if it's great. It, it will find a way. We have uh, time for one more tweet. Okay, this question is from Kresic. Uh That's Kara Kresi. 
And her question is, what advice do you have for college students who want to pursue a career in your field? Did you hear that? <laughs> the one question he can't Sorry. answer. <laughs> John? I can't answer a lot of questions. <laughs> Hello? Wow. <laughs> He's yeah, th- you're here. thinking on that one. Look at that. I can- well, I-, I was just thinking about when... When I was in school there, um, I had to really kind of figure, like, it was a weird time. And it's not all that different now. I mean, that's the one thing I kind of, you know, everything ebbs and flows. And I, the most important thing that I could do as about to graduate was finding some sort of, like, full-time employment, doing what it is that I hoped that I would want to do for a career. And that was really, really difficult in 1990 for some reason. Um, so I took an internship. I delayed graduating until January of 91. So I didn't graduate in May of 90 when I was supposed to, because I found a job and I could only go part time to finish my degree. Um, but I knew I was in, or at least about to be in. I, I think the simple thing is that you have to make a lot of sacrifices um, early on. Um, and be an excellent person, um, communicate effectively, follow through. Um, and be present. A lot of this is still luck. I was at the right time or the right place at the right time. I put myself out in Los Angeles for, at an industry convention. I was visible. I wore a God awful gaudy Z 100 t-shirt <laughs> and like stood out. Everybody else was in suits. So everybody was trying to figure out like what I did. <laughs> um, and I was interning there. So that was great. So it was about, you know, standing out and I just asked a lot of questions. And I always followed through with the people that I shook hands with and got a business card. And, and, you know, everybody starts somewhere. And most of the people who do this in the industry, if they still have passion, I would think that they would if they're still doing this because, you know, it's a difficult road no matter what side of this you're on. Um, You have to stick with it. If you really, really believe that, that this is what you're supposed to do, then you won't be discouraged by no. You will continue to go in and refine what it is that you're great at. And if you're really, really great, somebody's going to discover it and somebody's going to recognize themselves in you. And um, and from there, it'll be about taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Well, John, I think we've taken a great opportunity to speak with somebody who's really great at speaking on the radio, and that is you, John Butler. So we want to thank you for being on Music Biz 101 and More. Can we give John Butler a hand for being on Music Biz 101 and More on WP 88.7? That's you, John. It's it's been a tremendous time. Thank you, John. Um, Thanks for coming on. We will send the can of turtle wax out to you for appearing on the show. Awesome. Yes. Winter's coming. Now, what so. can I use that on? <laughs> you can use that on your self-driving car. No, on a turtle. <laughs> on the what? On a turtle. Or a turtle a because it's turtle wax. Yeah. That's right. That's fine. The too. self-driving car one, that was really specific. Yeah, it's interesting. 
It's a, it's a good question. But it's, I guess it's not as hard to answer as, uh, should I go to college or not, John? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so, so like, can, if you're in a self-driving car, can you use the VR technology? Because we're <laughs> actually doing that. We're, we're, like, putting you on stage with Lee Bryce, one of our artists, or, you know, so mm. I guess you could be in the car and have these immersive music experiences and... I guess you could do that with the hands-free. Yeah. So. yeah, Abbott just announced uh, today with Universal they're doing some sort of a tour that's incorporating a digital experience that sounds VR-like and, mm-hmm. and all that. Uh, with, uh, mm-hmm. all that Listen, stuff. if anybody in your audience has never experienced that technology and put on the crazy yes. contraption on your head or put the earphones on, please do it. It is mind-blowing. I'm telling you, it's really yeah, it's it's a little scary weird. at the beginning. Yeah, uh, but it's... Yeah, it's done really cool. I understand why people are really focusing on it. So. President Potenza's into that. No, so yeah. We're actually going to have... Is he ben- doing it right now? Yeah, he is. He <laughs> yeah. said that the whole show, he hasn't heard a thing you said as you're playing his games. <laughs> but we have Benji Rogers from Pledge Music, who's going to be on in two weeks, and he is very much into the VR thing. So uh-huh. we're talking about how music is going to connect itself to that. So that's, uh, I tell uh, stream it online on Stitcher. Is that where I can find the show? You can find this show uh, when it becomes a podcast on iTunes, iTunes and uh, SoundCloud, SoundCloud especially. And you can Stitcher. go to Stitcher, but SoundCloud and iTunes are the best for this. See, I lobbed that opportunity for you to go promote it. Go for it. That's because you're all into promotion. It's what you do. You're the VP of that. You're the <laughs> VP right. of my life, John. <laughs> so we want to thank John Butler one more yes. time. VP Kurt Records. We'll music see you in a few months. Yes, we'll see you in May, John, when we're out in, in Nashville. Awesome, guys. Thank Thanks, you so man. Much. Thank you. And we want to thank Nate the Hawk for taking care of everything behind the board. Yeah. Nate the Hawk. Nathaniel Hawkins did a great job. We want to thank President Charles Potenza <laughs> for being here and taking care of that MBA and music biz. <laughs> anytime, Charles. Anytime. That's great. And next week we have Jim Leavitt, mm-hmm. who is in charge of licensing and sync deals for The Orchard which oh. is a uh, independent distributor owned by Sony so yep. independent in parenthesis no, in uh, quotes but uh, we'll talk a lot about that so that's going to be really cool now the week after that Benji Rogers who we just mentioned so uh, a couple great weeks coming up after this so we want to thank Dr. Stabon Marconi well, for being thank here thank you very thank you, much Dr. and also my co-host David Kirk Philp that is true i am your professor David Philp David Kerr, I, I've been messing up the end of these shows. At, at these, it's it's after nine, so I can't speak. Yes, we, yes. I am your. I'll start again. I can say again. Say your professor, David Kirk. Yes, and my co-host, David Kirk Phil. Take two. That's right. And I am your professor, David Kirk Phil. And we want to thank you for so listening. Bring that music up. Yes, sir. Bring up the Rob Busari. And at the end of every show, of course, we do not say hello because that would be silly. Because it's the end of the show. So instead of saying hello at the end of the show, we always say.
Time.